But I want to talk with you today about um, being where God wants you to be, uh, uh, knowing the will of God, knowing uh, uh, that wherever you're at, God is going to use you there, and how to be open to God using you where you're at at this particular point in your life. And so to do that, we're going to look at the life of a woman from the Old Testament by the name of Esther. I will tell you that being in the will of God has always been the highest priority for Carrie and me. I don't know that we have always been in God's will in every detail of our life. I'm sure we have not. In fact, I can probably look at back and say, oh, I missed it there or I missed it this other place, you know. But even from a, from a, as, a, as a young person, my heart's desire was always to do what God wanted me to do. I didn't, I wasn't born a pastor. I became a pastor after a lot of submission to God and training to follow his will and to make this happen. A lot of people, I think, they, they look at us and they say, well, this is, this is something you were just born to do. I, I don't know if that's the case or not. I, I don't have a judgment on that or not. But what I will say is that early on in my life, God really moved upon my heart, that of my wife, and drew us into a, a sense of call to fulfill that call to be in God's ministry, ministering to God's people. And we committed ourselves to that task. We trained for that task. And that's how God is using us today. And when we came to Valley Assembly of God in June of uh, 2001, now it's Life Church, when we came to this church to serve as pastors, we did not come for any other reason than the will of God for our lives. Uh, we were gainfully employed. We weren't looking for a job. We didn't need to find a, a paycheck somewhere. We were already doing just fine. And uh, as a matter of fact, it, it is true, we began to sense that God was getting ready to move us from the church that we were leading in Colorado. He was getting ready to move us, and one of the ways we discerned that was not only the sense within our own heart, but the fact that we started getting calls from uh, different places across the nation. I had a call from a, a church back in Detroit. How in the world a church in Detroit knew who I was? I have no idea, but somehow they did. They made contact with us. There was a church uh, in Des Moines that made contact with us. There was one up in Idaho that made contact with us. There was another church here in Utah that made contact with us as well. And then, of course, uh, Life Church made contact with us. And, and so this all happened at relatively the same, in the same, within the same few weeks, you know. It, it was amazing to me. And God, what are you trying to say and what are you trying to do in our lives? And, and as we sought God's will and his direction, we felt that uh, the, the invitation from this church here was something that we should pursue for our lives to see where God would take it. We didn't know if this was for sure where God wanted us, but we felt we should, we should pursue this that, and see if this is where God wants us to be. And we came and presented our ministry in April of 2001. According to our, the way we do things around here, our membership voted. And in the vote, they asked us, through the vote, they asked us to come and serve as pastors of this church. And I will tell you that the only reason that Carrie and I accepted that invitation from this church body was because we believed that this is where God wanted us to be. And I will also tell you that the only reason that I am on this stage this morning 
is for the very same, same reason. It's because I believe that this is where God wants me to be right now for such a time as this. What I have learned is that there is nothing like living in, with the knowledge that you are doing what God wants you to do. There is nothing like it having a sense that your life has divine purpose and direction behind it. The truth is, though, sometimes when you uh, do what you know to be God's will, it may, it may be doing something that you don't necessarily want to do. Doing God's will for your life may not always be the most fulfilling, the most wonderful, the most anticipated thing for your life. There are times that God will call you to do things that in the natural you may not want to do, but you submit to that because you know this, that if you're going to be happy in life, you have to do, you have to live God's way. And, and, I, and we have always been so thoroughly convinced of that. We didn't care where we ministered for the Lord. We didn't care what church. We didn't care what our salary was. We didn't care anything. But that we knew where God, that we were where God wanted us to be. And there will be times that you will be put in a position where maybe you take a lower salary because that's where you know God wants you. It may put you in a position that in the natural you don't prefer because you know that's where God wants you to be. You may be working for a company right now that you don't want to work for. You really wish and you've prayed, said, God, give me a new place. Uh, you may be living in a neighborhood that you really don't want to live in. God, make it possible for me to to uh, move from this location to a more preferable location. But you know that God is using you there. But you really don't want to be there. Being in God's will doesn't always mean that you're living under preferred conditions, with everything perfect. You know, I think of the Apostle Paul, just as an example. Um, he ended up in jail in a Greek city by the name of Philippi. And that's what the book of Philippians in the New Testament was written to Christians who lived in the city of Philippi. Paul ends up in prison there for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He certainly didn't want to be in that smelly, filthy, cockroach-ridden, rat-ridden, refuse-ridden environment. Who would? Who'd want to be there? But he admits in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, he said, everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ and because of my imprisonment. Most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. In other words, Paul was able to see beyond what he was immediately seeing. He was able to smell beyond what he was immediately smelling. And he saw the good that God was doing in an environment he really didn't want to be in. But he was willing to submit to God's will for his life. Sometimes God will put you in a place because you are needed there. And maybe you don't feel like you're needed there. In fact, if, if you feel like you're God's answer to those people, then you probably aren't needed there. 
are not needed there. Uh, it's, it's usual that when God taps us on the shoulder and asks us to do something, we, we, uh, we don't feel like we're the person for it. We don't feel like we can do it. It's oftentimes where we're saying, God, I don't think that I'm the change maker you need, but I will submit to what you want me to do, and I will walk with you in the process. There is nothing like being in the center of God's will because he makes the unbearable bearable. He makes the difficult pleasurable even when you're in circumstances that you don't like. And this is exactly the point of what I'm trying to bring to with, with a woman by the name of Esther in the Old Testament. Her story is one of being where God wanted her to be and the outcome of it was incredible. But on the front end, she didn't know that. It was submission to God and God's will and trusting him regardless of what looked impossible to her at the moment. So we're going to get into there, into the story. I will just start by saying she was not where she wanted to be. How do I know that? Well, she and her people were slaves. They were spoils of war. Now, we in America don't know anything about being spoils of war. We have never been conquered, the mainland, by a foreign country. So we know nothing of that, of being let off in chains or being occupied by another nation. We don't know about that. Israel knew about that. They were living that at this very mo moment. In fact, God had allowed the Babylonians to come down some years before Esther and to, and to conquer Israel, because Israel continued to violate her covenant with God, she continued to sin. So because of that, God allowed Babylon to come down and to conquer the people. After about 70 years, Persia became the, the predominant world power. Persia came in and conquered Babylon. So now, Esther and her people are, are the conquered ones, first by the Babylonians, and then by the Persians. Interesting, Babylon is up in the area of Iraq. Persia is the area of Iran today. Kind of give you a little geography of where that we're talking from. The Persian king at this particular time, his name was Xerxes. And as was the custom of his day, he was in complete control. He ruled with absolute power. And along with that power came a tremendous amount of pride. In fact, he was so proud of himself and all that he had achieved as emperor of this great empire that he threw a party for himself, inviting all of the prominent leaders and the officials and the nobles to come to this party. And get this, this party didn't last for a day or for a week. This party lasted for 180 days. That's half a year. I think I would get bored with party after 180 days. I think I would say, I want to go to bed. I want to go to bed, you know. But when Xerxes threw a party, he threw a party. And he put everything on display, the Bible says. He wanted all of the nobles and the, and the leaders from all over his empire, which was vast, a part of the world. They all were brought in for the party, and he wanted all of them to see the wealth and the, the opulence of, that he owned. And so he's showing them everything, and one of the, the great gifts he wanted them to see uh, that he possessed was his queen, 
his queen. And her name was Vashti. Yeah, I forgot her name. Her name was Vashti. Remember, I'm not supposed to preach today. It's supposed to be another guy. So this is shooting from the hip. Her name is Vashti, all right? And he wants her to see, he wants everybody to see Vashti. But women's lib was already rising its head back in the Persian Empire, all right? And uh, when Vashti learned that the king wanted to put her on display in front of everybody else, she rebelled against that. And she said, no way, I'm not coming. And the king says, yes, you are. And she says, no, I'm not. Now, I don't know if that's smart or not. I wouldn't think that was too smart to defy somebody who has all the power over you, you know. But she said, I am not going to the party. And he said, yes, you are. And she says, no, I'm not. And so he did away with her. The Bible doesn't tell us how she did, he did away with her. You can only imagine what he probably did to her. But he now is in search for a brand new queen because that queen is gone. So long story short, the king disposes of Vashti, and he, he seeks for another queen, and that's where Esther comes in. Now, keep in mind, Esther's a slave. She's a conquered Jew, just like all the rest of the Jews that were in that empire. But she was also very beautiful, extremely beautiful. So when the king is looking for a new queen, he tells his eunuchs to go out there in the streets and... Boy, if you see a pretty one, grab her and bring her on in and put her in my harem, and we'll see if she qualifies for the level of queen or not. So they saw Esther. They grab a hold of her, and they bring her into the king's harem. And she had such beauty. It stood out so much that the Bible says that they put her in beauty treatments that lasted a year. I mean, can you imagine how, how beautiful her skin and everything about her would have been after a full year of beauty treatments? Now, on Sunday mornings, Carrie comes in about an hour before service, no, about a half hour before service starts, and she puts this gunk on my head up here. I have no idea what it is. It's a cream thing, and as cold as can be, I go, oh, you know. And then she puts a powder on top. Now, the reason she does that is to tone down the glare for the TV cameras. <laughs> but there's none of that that brings any beauty this direction. I am beyond that, all right? But, that, but, but Queen Esther is right there, ready to be made really beautiful for the queen. And so when she comes out a year later with all the rest of the harem, she stands head and shoulders above, not in terms of height, but in terms of beauty, above all the rest. And the king is smitten, and he walks over and takes the queen crown and puts the queen crown on Esther's head, and she becomes the, the, uh, the queen of all of Persia. So here we have it again, a story very similar to the Old Testament story of Joseph, who ends up in prison, and from prison is elevated to the second highest position in all of the land of Egypt and saves his whole family from the, the terrible uh, famine that's taking place in the world at that time. We have now Queen Esther, who is a slave, a conquered woman, who is now placed as second highest in all of the land in the kingdom of Persia. And you'll, we're going to talk about how God uses that. 
The, sh the short story of how God uses her is this. Her uncle, Mordecai, heard about a plot to assassinate the king. And he reported that plot to Esther. And so Esther goes to her husband and he says, hey, these guys are, Mordecai, my uncle, has told me these guys are going to try to kill you. And so he investigates, finds out that it's true, and he has those guys executed instead. But Mordecai was a really strong-willed, strong, God-fearing guy, and he would not bow to any man. And that's very very typical of, of the Jews, especially this time. They wouldn't bow. They didn't do it in Babylon, and they wouldn't do it here either. They didn't bow. And so when, when, when King Xerxes' number two man would go by, everybody had to bow as he went by in his carriage or, or his chariot or on horseback, whatever. Everybody had to bow because his name was Haman. Everybody had to bow to Haman. But when he'd go by, Mordecai wouldn't bow. I only bow to God. I only bow to God. I won't bow to you, Haman. This infuriated Haman. And so he devised a plan whereby he would, he would put uh, Mordecai on the gallows. He was so full of hell that, and his anger was so deep that he not only hated Mordecai, but he hated the whole Jewish race. And so he said, uh, let, let's put Mordecai on the gallows. We'll hang him there, but we're going to kill every Jew in the empire. Well, the king didn't care. He wasn't benevolent. They weren't that way. And so the king signs the thing into law. Says, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll kill all of the Jews. We'll annihilate them. And they set up a plan to do this. And uh, as it was, it was going to be about a year down the road that this plan would uh, be implemented. But what the king did not know was that both Mordecai, who had saved his, wife, his life, and his queen, Esther, were both Jews. They were under a death sentence now that he had signed in the law, devised by his number two by the name of Haman. But God had Mordecai and Esther right where he wanted them, not to just save their lives, but to save the lives of the Jewish people and to thwart, foil this evil plan. When Mordecai told Esther about his plan to kill the Jews... He told her to go before the king, and he says, you've got to beg the king for mercy for our people. You, you've got to beg the king. You've got to go before. You've got to stop this plan somehow. The problem was nobody could go before the king unless he summoned them. If they showed up in his presence and he hadn't summoned them, it could and usually would cost them their life. The way they knew that they would survive is if he held out his scepter. If he held out the scepter, then they could come on in. But if they even showed up at the door and weren't summoned, including the queen, they could be killed for doing this. But then Mordecai says to Esther, listen, you've got to go, you've got to go appear before your husband. You've got to go appear before the king, no matter what it costs, because... The, the, the very existence of all of our people is dependent on you reversing this law. So she, uh, she goes in before the king, and this is what's recorded in, in Esther 4. 
This is what Mordecai said. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die, and who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just a time as this. In other words, who knows that you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do at exactly this time to achieve this outcome. Who knows but that this is why all of this has happened. You don't see it yet, but maybe that's why you were elevated by God to this position. So Esther takes the risk. She appears before the king. She begs for mercy with the Jews. And when she appeared before the king, he held out the scepter. He was smitten by this gal. He held out the scepter to her, and she walked on in. And instead of uh, talking to him about the situation with the Jews and the law and, and the edict that he had signed into law and all of that, she just simply walked in. He says, what can I do for you? She said, I just want to have another party. This guy loved parties. He'd already done one for 180 days. They've, they shut that down for a while. Now it's party time again. And so she says, I want to throw a banquet tonight. And he says, okay, I'll come. Who else? He, she says, bring Haman, your number two. Well, so they go and they party and they have a great time. And the king says to her, okay, man, we have had a great time. What is it that you want, Esther? And she says, I just want to have another party. Let's do this again tomorrow night. And so the king says, well, this is my kind of gal. All right, we're going to party again tomorrow night. And, and she, he says, who do you want me to bring? She, she says, you bring Haman again. And so they both agreed, and Haman is delighted, and he's figuring, man, I'm being treated like the, almost like the king himself. Everything's going my way. I'm going to put the Jews out of existence. I'm going to put Mordecai on the gallows. And... In fact, he even started building the gallows right then. He said, I want it to be right out here. I want it to be so high. I want you to hang him on those gallows in just a couple of days. Well, that night, the king couldn't sleep because God kept waking him up. The king couldn't sleep, so he ordered that history books from the empire, from the history of the empire, be brought to him to help put him to sleep. And I think probably all of us know that history will put about all of us to sleep. So he decides he's going to read the history books and, and maybe get, get tired again, you know, get sleepy again. And there it was, as he's reading, he's reminded that this Mordecai is the guy who saved his life a few years back, revealed the plot to assassinate him. And, and so he, he is reminded of, of that situation and what took place. So the next day, the king decides that he wants to award, reward Mordecai for his act of loyalty to him so many years before. So he even asks Haman, his number two, he says, Haman, tell me what you think I should do for a, a man the king really wants to reward for, for great excellence, for doing something great for him. And so Haman's thinking to himself, well, he's talking about me, you know. He's talking about me. I'm number two. Who else could it be? So Haman dreams up the best thing that he can come, come up with, okay? And uh, one, one part of it is, I think that this man should be mounted on your best uh, horse and drawn through the city uh, by its reins, by uh, an underling, and taken it everywhere they went. The, the, the underling would yell out, bow down before this, this man who's been rewarded by the king and, and everything. And so... Uh, the king says, that's a great idea, Haman. He says, I want you to take the horse and go get Mordecai. 
and put him on the horse and I want you to lead him through the streets yelling, bow down to Mordecai, the man the king is honoring right here. You talk about a joke, wow. Well, anyway, both the king and, the, and, and Haman end up going to another party. <laughs> and at this time, the king says, Esther, what is it you want? And she says, King, there has been a decree put out by your office to kill all of my people, to kill Mordecai, who saved your life, to kill me, your wife, and to kill the whole Jewish race. And it's been plotted by your number two, Haman. He's sitting right over here. He's the guy. And the Bible says Haman's face went ashen and he just about fainted right there. And the king is enraged. He walks out to get the guard and Haman is begging the queen, you know, back off, back off, be merciful. He grabs a hold of, be merciful to me. And the king comes back in. He sees him grabbing his, his wife, you know. And that really enrages him. The very gallows that he built to put Mordecai on were the ones that he and his family were all hung on that very day. And the, um, the decree to annihilate the Jews was brought to an end. In fact, not only was it so complete, that, but the Jews were then given permission to, to attack their enemies. And so they annihilated thousands of their enemies who intended to annihilate them. If that doesn't speak to the blessings of God upon people who trust him, I don't know what does. Because God is saying through that, not only will I protect you, but I'll put you on the offensive, and I'll make you the head and not the tail. I'll make you the top and not the bottom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless your life. And folks, you can take that to the bank. Hallelujah. That just came to me, so that must have been of the Spirit. Well, from Esther's story, then, there are three principles that I want to share with you very quickly because I'm out of time. It's already past 12 o'clock. Sorry. If you want to go, you can go. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll talk to Carrie. <laughs> She's already heard the message once, but she needs it again, let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Point number one in discerning the will of God for your life God has you in the right place. You've got to be convinced that God has directed your life and you're in the right place even if you don't like it. The Bible says when you make Jesus your Savior and Lord, He directs your, your steps. Psalm 37, 23, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. And then I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which many of us have memorized you know, and, and know it by heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and he shall direct your path. There are three conditions that are placed upon that blessing, the blessing of the last line. The three conditions are trust, first of all. That means to be confident in. God, I trust that you have me where you want me and that you are doing in me what you want to do. I, I'm trusting that. Number two is leaning. You don't lean to what you think is right. You lean to... You're, you're trusting and leaning on God's wisdom in this whole thing. You're relying not on the way you see it, but on God seeing it in a way that's superior to the way you see it. And then number three is, of course, acknowledgement, which means to let God into every area of your life. Now, if you meet those requirements, 
God will give you the blessing of being in the right place. Was Esther afraid to appear before the king unsummoned? You, you bet she was. In fact, she told Mordecai and the Jews to fast and pray for her. She says, this is, I'm in mortal danger walking into the king's presence to talk to him. Pray and fast that the Lord will give me favor as I go in before the king. Then she said to Mordecai, her uncle, in chapter 4, verse 16 of Esther, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. In other words, I'm going to put my life on the line here. I'm going to do what I have to do because God has put me in this position for a reason. Now, some of us here today, you're desperately looking for a change in your situation. You're desperately looking for a way out. You don't like where you are. You don't like what's going on in your life. You think to yourself, it can't be God's will for me to work in a place like this. It can't be God's will for me to live in this city. It can't be God's will for me to live in my neighborhood, the way those people treat me. <laughs> it can't be God's will for me to live with this man. It can't be God's will for me to live with, live with this woman. God surely wants me to enjoy life, and I'm not enjoying it, so I must be out of God's will. But what I'm telling you is that even though your situation may be tough and unpleasant, God is directing your steps. Don't look for the easy way out. Look for a way to glorify God where you're at right now what you're doing right now. If you will make much of the little God has given you now, he'll make you ruler over much later. That's his promise. If you'll do that, you'll see God's miraculous and abundant provisions in your life. Number two, God has you in the right place at the right time. Mordecai said to Esther in chapter 4, verse 14, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? Who knows that you live where you live, that you work where you work for such a time as this. This is exactly what God has for you. Had Esther come into the palace at a different time, the race, she would have been killed. It never would, she came at exactly the right time. And it may not look like your life is in control, but I want to assure you of something this morning. If you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, you've made him the Savior, you've made him your Lord, you've invited him to be in your life, you've surrendered your will to his, God has you where you are supposed to be for such a time as this. You're exactly at this moment where you're supposed to be. I don't mean in the building here. I'm talking about your life, the bigger scope of your life. It may not be forever. It may be only for a season. But God has you where he wants you for such a time as this. Let me go to uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. Speaking of how God controls even leaders of the world, he controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. God is in charge of the whole thing. He's in charge of your life. I'm skipping over a lot to get you out of here. Number three, God has you in the right place at the right time to bring about the right outcome. So God used Esther to save the whole race of Jews. What a great outcome that was. She's the only one that could have done it. 
I don't know what God is going to do through your life. I don't know what the outcome is. But if you will let him be God over your life, I will guarantee you that he'll have you in the right place at the right time to bring about the right outcome. You may not see that right now, but you trust him. Maybe you don't want to live in Utah. Submit that to Jesus and tell him, Jesus, I will live wherever you want me to live. I'd even live in Houston. Oh, man. That's like Africa. It's so humid down there. Oh, my word. Cockroaches the size of you. I don't want to move to Houston. But you know what? If God wanted me to go to Houston, I would go to Houston. I would go wherever God wants me to go. You need to say the same thing. Lord, you are the commander-in-chief. I'm just a soldier. I go where the commander tells me to go. And I'm willing to live where you want me to live so that you can do through me what you want to do through me. Maybe you don't like to work where you're working, but you do the same thing. Here's my life, Lord. I don't like it here, but I'm going to be the best employee in this place. Instead of griping and complaining about it, I'm going to be the absolute best person that I can possibly be. I'm going to stand and, and shine like a star for this place, even though I don't like it. And see what God does with that. See where God takes you. That was Paul's attitude when he wrote in 2 Timothy 4.8, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all to all who have longed for his appearing. Some of the reward will be in eternity, but I am convinced that some of the reward is going to be here and now. And you want to live ready for his reward. We'll see the outcome of our faithfulness to the Lord. You won't know how it's going to happen, but because you're faithful to God, your kids are going to come back to Jesus. You don't know how that, because they seem so rebellious, you don't know how it can happen, but that's going to happen. You don't know how it could happen, but your co-worker's heart's going to be touched. A neighbor's heart's going to be touched because you live in that neighborhood. You're going to be God's light to them. On and on and on it could be. Let me just end by reminding you that Jesus came to the right place, Israel, at the right time under Roman rule for the right outcome, the salvation of the lost. And Paul tells us in Galatians 4, he says, when the right time came, God sent a son to buy freedom for us so that he could adopt us as his very own children. So let me just say, at the right time, God will give you the job you long for. At the right time, God will give you that husband, that wife that you yearn for. At the right time, you will get the raise, the promotion that you want. At the right time, God will bring the healing to your sick body. It's all going to come in his time when you stay faithful to him and trust him. Okay. Thank you. I didn't need that, but thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, but this only works if you've made Jesus your Savior and your Lord. Otherwise, you're on your own. If he's not your Savior and your Lord, he may be gracious to you and allow some good things to happen in your life, but eventually, it's all going to catch up with you. You've got to make him 
the controller of your life. Here at Live Church, we pray that you have a blessed week. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can always go to LifeChurchUtah.com.